God coming near, being close at hand. And so as we open scripture together today and as we pray, let's pray together that God is imminent in this room and not in ways that we just academically give a nod and say, yes, we agree that you are present, that you are close, but in a way that we experience him in in his nearness, in his God with us, Emmanuel, okay? So let's let's pray together and then we're going to go through this message. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Advent. Thank you for this time before Christmas where we reflect and we look inside and we experience you. We pray that this morning, in even deeper ways than we already have, we experience your eminence, that we experience you being close at hand, that we can see you at work in ways that maybe we didn't see on our way in this morning. Would you open our eyes to you at work? Thanks for this community. Thanks for what you're doing. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. As we look at God's imminence this morning, we're going to look at how he came to Bethlehem. We're going to look at the actual city. I don't have pictures. I've never been there. But we're going to look at the actual city of Bethlehem, what it meant in Scripture, and what that has to say to us today about God's imminence. Okay? Now, when I think of Bethlehem, I think of when I was a little kid, because real honest, most of the Christmas story I picture in real Charlie Brown church play, little cute kids doing everything wrong kind of ways. That's sadly, that's still how I, it was really cute, but that's still how I see the Christmas story and how I think of things like like Bethlehem. I think of the little kid, they always pick the narrator to be the little kid who forgets to breathe when he talks, (laughs) Right? Like, one of the first things you learn to do when you speak in front of people is you learn to breathe. Like, you have to remember to do that. But we forget to tell the narrator in the Christmas program to do that. So it comes time for the pageant, and the little kid comes up, and he says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the times of Herod the king, <gasps> wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What a And their mom and dad are like, That's so cute. Their brother and sister are like, I'm going to make so much fun of that kid. <laughs> you know, at that time, there's, there's like wise men, and for some reason, there's usually three wise men, and they usually try to have them be different heights and stuff like that, so that they look different from one another, and one of the wise men always has a robe that's too long and looks like they're going to trip and fall and knock somebody over, and the other one, their t-shirt that has Spider-Man on it is showing through the robe. And, and it, it looks like someone forgot to, like, help them get into the costume. There's always a sheep kid over at the side goofing off. Like, they picked that kid to be the sheep, thinking no one would notice. But the sheep's, like, throwing things and checking their phone, which sheep in the first century didn't do. And then there's, there's like, Mary, who's, at least in our church, she was the super cute girl. Whoever was super cute got to be Mary. And then Joseph, he was really embarrassed because he got to be by the super cute Mary. And then there was Jesus, who was really like a cabbage patch doll because no one trusted their actual child to be with that Joseph or near that sheep. And even like my understanding of a stable, 
I never really got it. Like, I thought the stable was kind of like a hipster B&B. Like, somewhere that Chris would go, you know? And I always thought, like, Jesus kind of came like a Postmates delivery. Like, he just showed up and guests hung out. And This was real life, though. This was a real-life pregnancy and a real-life birth. And if it's, if it's real life, it makes me wonder, before going to Bethlehem, do you, do you think Mary nested? Like, I wonder if she, like, really prepared her home. Like, if she had that feeling that especially first-time mothers have of, of preparing everything and getting everything in, in order. Do you think Mary and Joseph were were scared? Did they ask their friends and family like a first century Lamaze class? Like, what, what's going to happen? How do we do this? Like, they had to have if this was a, a real birth. And I often forget that Emmanuel, God with us, was imminent in response to real prayers from real people at a real time in a very real way. I often forget how real this whole thing is. I mean, let's consider Bethlehem. This is a real city. And every city has stories, right? Every city you go to, it has its own barbecue, its own music, its own culture. It's why we like some cities and why we don't like some other cities. And that's just what happens in a city. And the stories of a city change that place. They live on in that place. Like before I moved here, all I knew about Louisville is that this is where baseball bats were made, and this is where Muhammad Ali was from. That's really it. What's that? That's all you need to know. Well, here's some crazy stuff. In this neighborhood, in 1839, at 7th and Ormsby, do you guys know there was a racetrack? Before Churchill Downs, Oakland Racetrack was built. This neighborhood was added to the city. It was annexed in in 1868. 48 city blocks of Victorian homes. The largest Victorian neighborhood in the United States. It was built as part of the Southern Exposition. This five years of 100-day world fairs, less than 20 years after slavery was lifted. That's really weird. That it was lifted but not healed. And then all of a sudden, we brought the world for five straight years into this neighborhood, right into Central Park. The whole neighborhood was built around it by people who came for the 100 days and then didn't want to leave. And so then they just built a house just like the one on St. James or the one on 4th or the one on 6th. And the neighborhood was formed after that. In this city, after Prohibition fell, eight distilleries appeared. Shocking, right? It's like a weekend in Louisville. But here's the wild thing. The distilleries all appeared next to each other on the south end of the city, and so Louisville tried to annex their neighborhood in for taxing. They wanted the money, but the city, the the distilleries fought against that, and and there became this bill in 1938, the Shively Bill, that was passed to make it harder to force communities to merge with the city. And Shively was formed over distilleries. But the Shively Bill changed our city, right? As all of a sudden, neighborhoods became their own entities and their own municipalities in the 50s and the 60s. And May 27, 1968, a protest in Parkland 
over a reinstated officer, it proved fatal. And a giant mess happened that changed the demographics of our city in ways that we still feel. Part of the reality of what we live in right now is because of that day in 1968. After 21 years of residential segregation in schools, our county and city school districts merged in 1975. 18 years later, the county and city government merged. But today, the impact of holding on to the old life while still ignoring those who were oppressed by it, the city lines, the school busing and distilleries, they're all a part of our everyday narrative of this city, right? You can't go through this city in a, in a weekday without bumping into one, two, three, or four of those realities that are all out of the story of our city. The story is held like an identity until that story is redeemed, until that story is restored. Now, Bethlehem wasn't any different. Bethlehem was known to us as the city of David, and that's pretty much all we know. If we don't spend time going through the Old Testament, we just think it was the city of David. Where David was born, what a cool place. I bet you go there and you get a selfie taken, and what a, what a great legacy. But there's a lot more. Look at, look at Genesis 35 with me. This is, this is Rachel here. They journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth. And she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. And her soul was departing. A beautiful way to say that she was dying and she died. And she named this child Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. So the family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The family of the Old Testament. When their family crosses Bethlehem, it's a tragedy. Rachel dies there. This, uh, this pillar is still there. You, you Google it, there's, there's people warring around and about the pillar of Rachel. It's fought over. Rachel names her son the son of sorrow as she breathes her last. Her husband changes the name to son of my right hand because we know names carry some weight. It'd be pretty hard to not only be, know that your mother died in your childbirth, but also that she named you son of sorrow. And so the dad changed the name, but this family, the family of the Jewish faith, their encounter with Bethlehem is tragedy. Loss, grief and tears, that's part of what Bethlehem's known for. Look with me at, at, at the book of, of Ruth. If there is a story in the Old Testament that we don't stop and feel the emotional weight of, I, I would argue that that is Ruth. We just skip 
to the end of Ruth, and, and, and we skip all, past all the pain to the redeemed part, but that redeemed part didn't happen without scars. It happened in real time. And so look, look, at, look at this. This is Ruth and Naomi. After Ruth says she'll go wherever Naomi is, after Ruth and Naomi lose their husbands, Ruth is going as, a, as an immigrant to Naomi's land. And Naomi is returning home. She left as someone with wealth and two sons and a husband, and she returned with nothing but her daughter-in-law. And here's, here's what happened. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is, is, is this Naomi? She said to them, call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now Bethlehem's this, this tiny little town. It's just outside of Jerusalem. Just, uh, you can walk there. Jerusalem's this big, bustling city. Bethlehem never was annexed in. It never became part of it. It was just this tiny little country town. Even to this day, it, it, it looks like farmland, I've heard. It's just small and slow. And when, when Naomi walks back in, the women all remember her. Isn't, isn't that Naomi? Is that her? Isn't she the one with, who left with so much? It looks like her, but she's, she doesn't have the same. Her, her countenance isn't the same. And when she comes back, she says, call me Mara. Quite literally, she says, call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant any longer. Call me bitter, because everything that I had is gone. I left full. I've come back home empty. For a season, the entire city of Bethlehem knew her as bitter and wrestled with her story alongside of her. This is some of the context of this place that we know of as Bethlehem. So the Christmas story in Luke 2. Let's look at this together. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. Well, they were there. The time came for her to deliver the child and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this, this trek that they went on, it's like 85 to 90 miles. That's quite the hike. Like some of us would need two bathroom breaks and a car to go that far, and they didn't have a vehicle. Now, one of the things I didn't realize is women didn't have to register. The men had to go to their family's hometown and register, but women didn't have to go. And so it makes me wonder, why did, why did Mary go? Maybe she went because she was newly buried and she really liked Joseph. Maybe he requested, hey, you're going to have this baby. I feel safer with you having the child with me. Like, I want you to be with me. Maybe she was avoiding scandal. 
Because if someone did the math, it might not make sense with the date that they were married and all of this stuff. Maybe she was knowingly fulfilling Scripture. The Scripture doesn't say why Mary went along, but she didn't have to go along. But she chose to go along this 85 to 90 mile trek, and they get to this inn, which is not a hipster Airbnb. It's, it's really, it, what it was was a public lodging for caravans. So wherever all the caravans went, it was a public space that you could put all your camels and donkeys and all, like, it, w- it was like a campground or a temporary RV park. That's what it was. It was, hey, you're coming in for this big event, this registration, and, and you can be here. It wasn't really a hotel kind of thing. And where all the caravans went were, were full, but all the animals went over here, and so did Mary and Joseph then. And this is where Emmanuel was eminent. This is where he was impending and close at hand. But he wasn't the only one who was close. Look at Matthew 2. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. See, if you remember, the wise men came and and visited Jesus on their way. They stopped to see Herod, and Herod said, yeah, go see this new king, but come back and tell me where he is, because I want to worship as well. It was just a big trick by Herod. An angel came and told the wise men, that's a trick. So they avoided Herod, and he figured it out. That baby was born in Bethlehem. And so just to cover his bases, every child under two was killed. That's a real thing. That's real families. It's real children. Like imagine what that was like to have a two-year gap in your city where there just are not people of, those, of that age. We know Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into Egypt. They're allowed into Egypt. They live there safely until they can leave again, but Jesus grows up as the only one from Bethlehem. I have some friends who have like survivor's guilt for making it out of a neighborhood or making it out of a country because their friends didn't make it. This is Jesus. When he tells people when he's older, hey, you know, you just do this. Where were you born? And he says, Bethlehem, and they do the math and figure him out. They've never met someone his age from Bethlehem because that person doesn't exist. Because that city was eliminated. This is real stuff. We don't really think of this as the Christmas story, but this is the Christmas story. This murder and grief and pain. That's the legacy of Bethlehem. Someone from the outside might might come in and buy a postcard that says City of David, but anyone who lives in Bethlehem know that the defining things are that pillar is there because Rachel died here. And you know, before Ruth met Boaz and before Naomi's life was restored, this is the city where she ached. This is where the city where she was known as bitter and and my grand-grand-grandmother loved on her and cared for her 
when she had lost everything. And these neighbors and these neighbors both had their sons killed. Just killed. Filled with life. But Herod came and was afraid of a baby. And so that second and third grade class didn't exist. And then they went up to fifth and sixth. They didn't exist. That's the story of this city. So why does he come to Bethlehem? And why be close at hand? Why be imminent as a fragile baby in a place like this? And honestly, my my thought is, what good does it do to come into this place filled with sorrow and pain and grief as a little baby? What good does it do to just like sit and, and, and cry there as a child? What what is that for? But God told us what it was for. And in Micah, in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy about Jesus. Behold, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to rule in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. Ephrathah is the nickname of, of Bethlehem. It means fruitfulness, prophesies that, that this king is going to come to Bethlehem and it will be known for its fruitfulness. How different of a story is that compared to what had happened before? And it prophesies that Jesus is going to come as a shepherd king, like a shepherd leading his sheep This king will come and guide and point direction to his people. And they have David as an example, right? And so they know that David stopped lions and bears from the sheep, and this Messiah was going to protect his people in the same type of way. Maybe it's not lions and bears that come against us, but that this was a prophecy that the people of Bethlehem could sit securely because their king was coming. Not only that they would receive direction and security, but that his reign is universal. And that peace was going to come out of this tiny little place called Bethlehem. In the middle of the chaos and pain of Bethlehem, Emmanuel is imminent, providing direction providing security, and providing peace. And how about here in Louisville? And how about here in our neighborhood of old Louisville? And how about in your home and in my home? As we wait on Christmas, this Advent season, what does it mean to know that God is with us, close at hand, with direction, with impending security and peace? And where do we need 
to signal that, like Bethlehem, there's pain in our story. One of the things as I've gotten older that's most striking about reading Scripture is that people would do bold things like, like Naomi would say, hey, I'm, I'm bitter. And she wasn't afraid to admit that. And God was good enough to meet her in her bitterness and heal it. That Rachel, as she passed, as her spirit left, as it said, she was courageous enough to say, yeah, this is my son of sorrow because my life's being taken right now. And God's big enough to handle that and big enough to redeem that family story and bring gold out of it. That Herod can come with the most evil of intentions, but our God is bigger than the most evil of intentions and actions. And God can redeem that story and, and heal that city. I think of us. I think of our, our, our church and things like the, the shooting at the Kroger in, in J-Town. I think of other events that have impacted us and that we've felt together. I still think back to that week after Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling and how we really like kind of vomited pain on each other because we needed to. I know it's a gross image. You, you've hung out with me long enough. <laughs> but that's really what happened. We didn't worry about being pretty or correct. We just ached and we were honest. And God met us every time. Events have impacted us and and impacted our identity. But maybe we, we need a, a nickname like, like fruitfulness. Maybe we need God to redeem some of the things that's happened. Maybe we need to believe that, that God chooses to enter into the middle of our pain, in the middle of our fear, because he's not afraid. And it's very significant to me that he doesn't come as the shepherd king. He comes as a baby because he's not really worried about all this. We, we get pretty panicked about Herod's might. Look at our Facebook accounts, right? We get pretty worried about the power that's in the hands that have power. But God entered into that place that was being oppressed by that power, and he entered in as a baby, completely vulnerable, because he knew that he had that thing covered. He hasn't changed. Now, some of us have already received prayer today, and God's already been ministering, but some of us, God's not done with yet. Some of us feel like we have lost a ton over this season, over this year, we identify with Naomi, we feel bitter. We feel lack, we feel sorrow. That's just where we are. Some of us are lacking direction. Some of us are lacking security. Some of us are lacking peace. There's pressure on you and you're, you're bearing it alone. There's a fear that God's far off or, or that he's not for you. I know this because I hear it. Let's let God continue to move in us, not just giving us intellectual knowledge that, yes, 
Here's some facts about Bethlehem. And yes, God showed up and he's imminent. Here's the word of the week. Let's let it be bigger than that. And what if we experience God being near us, experience him giving direction, security, and peace by coming forward and saying like, okay, Lord, in in me too, in my life too. What if we come forward as people who say, you know what, I am bitter. I am. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to keep the happy face. I'm trying to do all this. But life has beat me up. I'm hurting. I fear I'm alone. What if we experience him healing? What if, what if the Messiah who came as a baby into the middle of all of that pain way back then was so that we would know that he's never changed and he'll enter into all of ours today? What if that's part of this? You see, Bethlehem wasn't this sterile, cute setting for a baby to be born. It was a city plagued by its past where a Savior chose to arrive, vulnerable and unintimidated. In this Advent, may we look to him for direction. May we find security in Emmanuel. And may peace be close at hand. As we kind of wrap up, we're, we're going to have pastors and leaders come forward who want to pray with you. And some of you don't, don't know Jesus outside of like, you, you've heard his name, you intellectually understand a few things, but you don't know him, you don't know the peace that comes from Jesus, then I, I encourage you, run forward before they get here. And some of you have, have forgotten peace. You knew it. But life's really beat you up for a little while. Some of you no longer feel secure. Some of you have been so busy caring for so many people that you don't have direction today. And this Messiah of of Micah is the Jesus we experience now. And so our leader's going to come forward. I'm going to pray for all of us. The worship team's going to come up and and lead us in a song. And if, if you want specific prayer with someone, I want to encourage you, come forward and, and, and pray with some. They're really nice people. Jamal's okay, but the rest are really nice people. <laughs> Let's pray together. Mighty Jesus, thank you that you are Emmanuel. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you are still the one who enters into our story. When I think of Bethlehem, I think of Louisville. When I think of this place that has a past that seems to haunt it, I'm so grateful that you entered into that place. And for some of us individually, we need an encounter with you like that today. Some of us badly need direction because we don't, we don't know what we're doing. Some of us desperately need some security because life is frightening. And some of us need peace or need to just know that you're with us, that we're not alone. And I pray that you would speak boldly to us now and that we'd experience you in powerful ways. In your precious name.
Don't rush out. That's getting loud right there. There we go. All right. All right. I scared myself. Um, yeah, for all of our guests, man, please don't rush out. Uh, Matt and I would love to meet you and just get to know your name and uh, connect with you before you go. Uh, but for all of you, thank you so much for showing up today. Let me remind you of what we've got coming up real quick before you go. And you can stand to your feet so we can dismiss you. Um, first off, don't forget, uh, on December the 19th, we're going to have our Christmas party and celebration. Our ugly sweater Christmas party. Sean, somebody said just wear a regular sweater. I don't know who that was, but that's just what I heard. Somebody said just wear a regular sweater. And... Um, we're going to have that on the 19th next week. We will have invitations for you um, so that you can invite. This is a wonderful event for you just to bring some friends and family members, neighbors, co-workers in. And for us just to fill this place with the joy of the season and have some fun together. So, uh, so look for those opportunities to do that. Uh, but then also, New Year's Eve. Here's, here's, New Year's Eve is not just about having a service. Uh, we really want you to be there because we're going to be casting vision for what the next year looks like at one church. And we really got some really good stuff that we've been praying about. Uh, not just clever ideas. We've been discerning and asking God to tell us what is the next stage for our ministry. And uh, what we didn't want to do was to come up with some clever ideas and cliches just to hand you something empty that might not pan out. What we wanted to make sure is that what we're doing is being led by the Lord. And so we've been praying and walking through this. And we want to share this with you because.